Hey friends, a quick preface to today's episode. I have John Scholler on the show and John is one mean machine when it comes to flipping properties. John tells his story of how he's flipped about 65 properties in the last two years with uh, his partners. So this is a guy with some serious systems. And what I've done in today's episode is I've actually made it about the nuts and bolts. What are the nuts and bolts to flipping properties at high volume? How do you manage contractors? How do you get financing or how do you get funds? And how do you sell the properties? There's so many moving parts and there's so many questions to be answered. I thought today would be an excellent opportunity to see how it's done when it's done well. And I know you're going to love this episode if you've ever thought about flipping a property or if you're one of those people who's flipped maybe one or two properties in a year or at a time and you're wondering how the heck does anyone take that to a higher level so that you can actually scale it and make a lot of money from it and I promise you this is an episode you're going to want to listen to. A quick announcement, there is going to be an investor event that I'm hosting with a fellow investor in the area, Travis Roy on. Travis, if I said that wrong, I'm sorry. And we're hosting it on the 24th, Wednesday the 24th of April. And it's at the Burlington Jack Astors. So for my friends in the greater Toronto area, the greater Hamilton area, Send me a message on Instagram if you're interested in attending. So just find me, look me up. I'm at the Andrew Hines on Instagram. And I'm also there on Facebook, the same handle. Send me a message. Let me know if you're interested and I will get you the details. We're just trying to get a figure on how many people want to come because this is a very casual event. It's for investors who are actually doing things and and no one's there to sell anything. It's really just an investor to connect with other investors and learn. So without further ado, please enjoy the episode with John Scholler. Hello, and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have John Scholler. Did I say that right? Yes, sir. He's on the show today. John is a very active real estate investor, among other things, and he's going to tell us all about it in a moment. But first off, John, how are you doing today? Good. How about yourself? I'm doing very well, and I appreciate you coming on. I've got a confession to make. You're actually my first American uh, guest. Everyone- oh, really? Everyone to this date has been, uh, has been Canadian. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, well, I, uh, I've actually done some investing in the U.S. too. So, and I wanted to make this podcast from the beginning an international podcast because I know several investors that are investing cross-border. I'm, I'm only an hour away from Buffalo, where I am. Uh, maybe not the ideal city to invest in, but... Uh, <laughs> that's all right. I actually have a, I actually have a mentor uh, that lives in Canada as well, but he's, he's on the West End. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And how did that end up happening? Uh, crazy story, actually. Uh, my wife and I were living in Maui. Uh, she was a travel nurse. And so we were there for about three months. And I was walking down the beach and this lady who said something to me, and I forget what she said today. But anyway, I sat down and started chatting with her. And her husband was out surfing. And we started talking. And I don't know how it came about, but we started talking about books we like to read. And I said, one of my favorite was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And of yeah. course, that, that leads right into real estate investing. And then Come to find out, they're huge real estate investors back in Canada where they're from. And we went to dinner that night and we just linked up ever since. And they're big investors up in Canada. And now I'm doing it down here. That's awesome. So, so you have Canadian roots. Have you ever been to Canada? I haven't. I haven't. My wife and I have plans uh, to go up there this summer. Yeah, do it in the summer. Do not come in the winter. <laughs> That's what we are. We have a lot of friends in Toronto as well. Okay, I'm right uh, an hour from there, 45 minutes depending on traffic. Uh, where, uh, whereabouts do you live? Um, right now, I'm in Charleston, West Virginia. Okay. How long have you been there? Going on about two and a half years now. And is that your center of operations for what you're doing uh, real estate-wise? Yes. Okay. So let's just take it back. You, you were in Maui. You guys got kind of the real estate investing bug. And uh, when did you start investing in real estate? So we went from Maui actually to Northern Virginia on another travel nurse assignment. Uh, Then we backpacked Europe for a little while and then she was applying to nurse anesthesia school Mm -hmm. and she got accepted at Marshall University, which happened to be here in Charleston, West Virginia, which is frankly the last place we thought we'd end up living. Okay. So she, she accepted the, uh, she accepted the invite to the school and we moved here and I didn't know anybody, but prior to moving here, I did some research and I said, I know I want to get into real estate investment. I had some money saved up from a prior business that I sold and I just knew that real estate is where I wanted to put my money. I just didn't know how and with who. 
So I found these guys through a podcast. It was Andrew and Steve, who are my current partners. Okay. Uh, AM Investments is our company. And I reached out to them about two months into getting here. And Andrew said, let's meet up at a local McDonald's. And I went there and we met up with them. And uh, I don't know how much of the story you want me to tell now. But oh, no, keep going. Okay, so went there and met up with Andrew. And I asked if I could shadow him. And that's all I wanted to do. Remember, we didn't know each other from Adam. And so they invited me out to shadow him one day. I went out and that was two years and a month and a half ago. And I never left. And now I'm a partner in the company and we've been flipping houses ever since. And basically I was, I was a missing puzzle piece to them and they were to, they both were to me. Now, when you say that, how do you mean, how are you a missing puzzle piece to them? So they knew the real estate side and I knew it from books, but you and I both know that books is one thing and being active and actually getting your hands in it is another. So I knew I really wanted that guidance. And then I am strong in the finance department. That's my background. I'm really good with managing and strategizing money. Uh, I've always been obsessed with it since I've been about 24, 25. Uh, so when I came in, they were a bit of a mess financially. Okay. And again, I didn't have the real estate background, so they let me dive right into the books. And just to tell you how crazy of a story this is, within three weeks, I was on the bank account. They took a lot of trust in me, and I also took a lot of trust in them because I'm now a pretty heavy investor inside the company as well. Okay. So not only am I a partner, but uh, my wife and I also invest in there heavily. You said you've invested. When did you guys invest in the company? And if you're comfortable, share how much. If not, no need to. Yeah, no problem. So my first investment, well, my, my wife, Rihanna, and I's first investment was about two to three months, I want to say, into being with the company. I was just kind of getting a feel for it. What we do is basically we take investors' money and put it into the homes, obviously. And then we gotcha. flip the house and they get a the way we were set up was a third of the profit share. That's okay. how we were set up. We're kind of transitioning that now to more percentage based. Uh, but anyway, we went out and looked at this house. It was a huge rancher. And we were sitting there talking at the back of the truck after we had walked through the house and everybody was on the same page that this was a fantastic deal. Mm -hmm. And I was like, guys, I think I want to do it. And Andrew and Steve were like, are you sure? Because if you know me, I was always very good at saving money, but I wasn't very good at investing in it because I'm very risk adverse, or at least I was. I'm definitely okay. losing the reins. But it was $110,000 was the original, was the purchase price right out the gate. So that's a huge first investment, obviously, to somebody doing it their very first, mm -hmm. very first time. So we bought it, we closed. And the reason I did it was we were doing what we call a soft flip. It was an okay house. The house was really nice in the pool. It had a pool. So what I did is I put $5,000 into it. I redid the floor in one of the rooms where a dog had peed everywhere. I cleaned it up really nicely, got some old carpet out of it. And then where I put a lot of the money because it was almost summertime is the end of spring, almost summer. I put a lot of money into the pool. I had that pool looking like it belonged on a resort. Right. Okay. And, and then basically that's how it went. That was my first investment. It was about 115 to 117 all in. Okay. So, so you did that investment with the company. Correct. Yeah. I, it I was 115 of your money. Like that was, that was your contribution. So you Correct. guys, you didn't use a, a mortgage at all? No, we didn't, we didn't have to use a mortgage at all, no. Okay, so that's good. So you were able to close cash. Um, just curious, what's your background? What, you, what did you do before you came into real estate investing? So uh, around 21 years old, I started a moving company in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I'm from. Okay. And I've since then, basically since that day, I was always frugal and saved a lot of money. Like uh, most people would call me cheap. I just call it being strategic. Yeah. But saved a lot of money. Uh, my wife and I both worked really hard. And then she got a great job as a nurse and a traveling nurse. And that helped us contribute as well. And once we were done with all that, I sold, sold the company. Then we went travel nursing. So that was a little bit backwards there. We sold the company, went travel nursing, saved even more because we didn't have rent or anything when you're travel nursing. Travel nursing is a fantastic gig, uh, especially because oh, they pay. Right. They pay for your housing. They, pay, they give you stipend for food. It's, it's a pretty good gig. And you get paid more. Yeah. So and we just had in Hawaii. That's crazy. <laughs> right, right. Why we did. <laughs> so Hawaii was a very low paying assignment comparatively because they know it's a uh, pretty competitive. Everybody just wants to be there. But even then we saved more than most while on that assignment. We also did California for a while, which is the best spot because they pay the highest. 
like California just paying the most as well then that was two years ago but that's when they were paying the most but anyway just saved all that money and uh, that's what happened we were ready to invest because we had a bunch of money saved up okay so that's a similar theme to some of the other guests I've had on this show I've had a mix but you know there's been quite a few guys that have come on that just saved they just managed to save up their down payment a lot of people who are a little bit more fast and loose have to come up with creative financing strategies to, to make it happen so that was your your baptism into real estate investing. How old were you when you did your first deal, if you don't mind me asking? I was 30, 29 or 30, right there. I'd have okay. to do the math. <laughs> and that was just two and a half years ago or so? Right. Wow. Yeah, so we're similar age. Uh, yeah, you're killing it so far. So you you were telling me just before we got on the uh, podcast that you're over 50 deals in the last two years? Correct. Well, I think we're closing in on 65 or 65 deal as a company, not personally. Personally, my wife and I have invested on probably around 15 now. 15, and that's also in the last year? In the last two years. Two years. So, so 65 with the company and 15 outside of that. 15, 15 of oh, the 65, correct. All right, we're on the same page now. So, dude, that's insane. How, how are you keeping up this pace and still managing to get your sleep? I know you get your workouts in. What, do you, what are you doing? What's your secret? So the first year, I'm not going to lie, it was rough. Uh, one, it was a new partnership. And I don't know if you've ever been in a partnership, but that is, it has its challenges in and of itself. The other one was having a lot of money out on these houses. Uh, I think I put out 150 or 160 on another house after that home. Um, and I was losing sleep at night because that house went into contract and then fell out. And I tell this story all the time. I called my wife into the, uh, I called my wife into the uh, bathroom on the first house. The, the the Mount Vernon home, the one that we went on, <coughs> sorry, the one that we the one that we went on on the first time. I called my wife and I was taking a shower. I said, I think I messed up. I think I lost all our money. We're never getting it back. It's gone forever. I was a nervous wreck. Because uh, keep in mind, I'm very I, I was very risk adverse. I still am to a degree, but I'm much better. But since then, after that first year, I've definitely definitely loosened the reins. I mean, I have four or five houses I'm personally invested in right now. That's how. So I have you know, much more money out than an original investment. And something that if you would have asked me two years ago, if I would do that, I would I'd say absolutely not. Okay. So, so the, the 15 that you said you've done personally, were many of those sales or did you keep them all? All of, all of them were sales and I'm currently invested on four right now. Oh, the four. And those are, those are your keepers or are those flips too? They're flips. They're either currently, I, we just bought them. They're in rehab or they're, yeah. they're getting ready to close. Do you have, like, I'm very curious, what are your goals with all of this? So my wife and I have different goals than most. I don't want any chains and that's, it's going to be different for most. I will never argue the fact that investing to keep long-term is going to build wealth and probably the better strategy overall for most. For me, I'm still in a big capital building stage and my goal to how much capital I want is high for most, they would say, why do you need that much? And my goal would be to buy a ton of units in one location versus 30 or 40 houses spread out across several cities. And that's just personal preference for me. Neither one's right or wrong. I just want all of my stuff efficient and easy to manage. So let's say I had a 25 or 30 unit apartment building. I'd rather have that with a live-in manager and someone to collect the rent that yes. lives there, then to have 30 homes spread out across multiple cities or multiple states. States. I know there's systems that will make either work. This is just personal preference. I have to agree with you that I don't like spread out. Uh, a friend of mine, he, uh, he's, he hasn't started investing yet, and he keeps sending me listings, and one of them will be you know, an hour and a half north, and another one's in, you know, three hours east, and I'm just like, Dude, you, you are going to have to go to these places. You're going to sleep in that unit. You do realize what this is going to do to your life. Like whatever you think this is going to be, just assume like uh, Grant Cardone 10X, it's, it's going to be 10 times more than you think it's going to be work-wise. Work and the more spread out it is, it, the more chaotic your life will be. And uh, yeah, so I can definitely resonate with you there. It is tough to, it's tough to not... Uh, to not own. For me, I have a hard time selling anything. I'm just like, well, I just know I'm going to look at that one day and say, well, it's worth more now. And your market might be a, a bit different. Like we're, we've been going through this crazy growth phase where I am and it's all the cities around me. Like any, anything within a two hour radius is, is pretty much uh, going up in value or has been going up in value at a rate of, you know, over 10% a year. 
depends. Uh, it means you might see one year where it's like 30% and then the, the next year it's flat or even falls a bit. But it, it just makes it so that down the road, you're going to look back and say, damn, I wish I'd bought more and kept them. And uh, so I, I can see your, your logic with that. So you're building capital now. It, are you just investing it in more flips or are you investing it in commercial paper like stocks or something like that at this point? Okay, so basically what I'm doing with the capital is I just keep reinvesting it back into more and more flips. And I'm also, my wife and I are also pretty heavy in the stock market as well. In fact, when we were travel nursing, we pretty much put 80% of her income, the max it would allow you to slide the needle to, which I think was 75 or 80% straight into the, into the stock market. And since then, now I know that you're able to, you know, directly uh, self-direct that money. And so that's something we will get to, into eventually as well. We just haven't ran out of capital yet as far as cash. So we don't really have uh, the need to do that yet. But eventually we will probably self-direct our retirement funds as well into more real estate purchases. And are those funds all in uh, like a registered fund, like a tax protected account? Correct. So a lot of it's in a 401k and then even more of it's in a Roth. The Roth IRA is my absolute favorite. Y'all have something similar and I forget what it was called. RRSPs up here. Similar. Yeah. And we have a, they call it a TFSA, which is just a tax-free savings account. So you can put money into it and anything you earn in that account is, is uh, tax-free. The cool thing you can do is they keep raising the limit. So you can actually like say invest it in like a private mortgage. So you could max it, put like 60 grand in. There are some, like some people I know that are you know, the limit's 60 now. I know people who have their, theirs up to like 120,000. And if you keep snowballing that, I mean, by the time you hit a million with that, you're making a lot of money tax-free. So uh, not, a, not a bad place to be. Absolutely. Take, take an average of eight to 10% and you're making 80 to $100,000 a year tax-free. You can't beat that. Yeah, I think our government really hates that. So who knows <laughs> if the gravy train will end one day. I mean, if too many people start doing it, they're going to start, you know, that's, we, you have the IRS, we have the CRA and they do the same thing. <laughs> Gotcha. I think ours, ours might be a little harsher. <laughs> Who knows? Um, yeah, so we were talking about investing at a distance before I know, and, and I could totally see why you're investing in stocks if you don't want to have the headaches of, of, of owning real estate because it is an active job. Have you considered yourself uh, the thought of, of doing private lending, like just doing private mortgages, lending other investors' mortgages on, on their flips? Absolutely. So here we call it hard money. I'm not sure hard if it's Term, yeah, private lending, hard money, same deal. Do you register when you say hard money? Are you registering on title, like on the deed of their house? It's registered. So we're, I'm, I haven't done hard money, but if somebody loans, we have a lot of personal investors, obviously, that give us money. We don't. We've been we've been able. We've been very fortunate to escape all hard money or institutional money. All <laughs> the money in the company has come from private lenders. Just yeah. straight up cash. Correct, and then of course they take the second deed of trust on the on the home when they invest. Okay. So the other thing we do to protect ourselves and so we don't have to register and all that stuff is it's an investor per house. We don't mingle money. So everybody has their own bank account. Okay. That's, that's interesting way of keeping organized. And I actually wanted to, one of my goals with this, when you told me you're flipping, you know, 50 properties in two years, there's obviously tons of logistics. I wanted to dig into the logistics of starting that kind of scale. Cause I think a lot of the investors that listen to this show are maybe trying to do a couple of year, uh, I had Sean Allen on a few few episodes back. He's doing 30 a year, uh, but he's an anomaly among most of the people who I talk to. So I'm just curious, you know, if we dig into some of the systems, like how how are you utilizing other people to make your business run? I know there are three people running the business. Have you given each person a role and just the three of you can get it all done? Or do you have other employees, other systems you've implemented? We have employees, but uh, I guess that's a two-part question there. We really love the book Traction, or, or at least I do. I'm actually, it's, it's really funny, I'm a business and financial coach, and I'm a consultant, and I actually came in just to consult, but it ended up linking perfectly, and so there, I'm, I'm there full-time as a partner. But we brought in another business coach, because nobody knows it all, he's much older than us, and he recommended the book Traction. I don't know if you've ever read it, but we've never heard of it. I picked it up and man, it's, it's just talking about building a system within your company and the system is to blame for everything. It kind of gives you a scapegoat. So like if you have to fire an employee, you're not firing the employee, the system fired the employee. The, the employee just si simply did not fit in and the system kicked them out, right? If the system is a really hard track and you can't go, you can't veer off, 
then if you do veer off, the system will give you a warning and then a second warning mm. and it kicks you out. And not, not, no, neither did I, Andrew, or Steve fire you. You just weren't a good fit for the company. And that's something that we've implemented. But another thing we've implemented is like you said, roles. That's a huge part. So it's, a, it's about staying in your lane. And if you have partners, this gets really tricky, uh, especially when a partner or partners think they're good at multiple mm -hmm. aspects of the company and letting go of those reins. So Steve and I had a huge problem with that. We are much, much better now. But my, my biggest advice for someone getting into flipping and trying to flip at this volume would be a, building a system on the one or two houses you're doing now. Don't wait till you're 10 or 15 houses deep and try to build a system because your foundation is going to be really shaky. If you don't have a way to keep budgets, a way to keep track of contractors, uh, whose roles, whose, that's going to get really convoluted at 15 houses and it's going to be a complete mess. Okay. Do you just, you said you're a business consultant. Did you go to business school or, or university or college or anything, or is this all you learned it on, you know, by doing? 12 years of being in business for myself. And I always say yeah. that I have a master's in Google and YouTube. That's awesome. Honestly, I know uh, there are people who, who are in that entrepreneurial vein who, who just believe that it's actually better to not go to school in a way. I did go to school, but in a way it almost makes it a hindrance because I'm, I'm good at bookkeeping. That's a really low paid job. If I spend my time bookkeeping when I could be making deals, you know, it, it can cause people to overthink. So uh, very interesting. So you said uh, systems obviously are a big part here. The system fires people. How does that conversation go? So we haven't had to completely implement it yet, but the system has kicked out warnings. So basically that's how it would go. You know, the, you get an email, you know, from HR, who is my partner, Andrew. Mm -hmm. he, he's the HR role. You get an email. Here's your warning. Here's your second warning. And then uh, recently we just had a, like a little coaching session on how to let people go. And that everybody says it's the hardest thing you ever have to do. Mm -hmm. I still believe system or not, unless you're a huge corporation, you're way, way up. I think that it's always going to be hard because you never want to let anybody go. But where you have to really think about it is that it's not just only unfair to the company or to you, it's unfair to the people working in the company and it's unfair yeah. to the individual that's not performing. I, I've, I've, speaking from experience, had to fire people and I know how horrible it is. And I think that uh, the best thing to do, like you're saying, is have the system in, in place beforehand. So if you're hiring people in, in your flip business or whatever, you always preface it by saying, look, this is going to work as long as it works for both of us. You know, I'm going to treat you like an entrepreneur and your job, I'm your customer. You know, you can even talk to them that way. And, and we got to make sure this is a mutual win-win. And I'll talk to you. If at some point it's not, this is just me talking to you because we got to make it work. You know, I'm, I'm not taking responsibility for you. You need to take responsibility for yourself here. And I think you could probably weed out a lot of people who are just not cool with that, right? And you'd spot the ones that just wanted somebody to take care of them. But in, the rea in reality, and I know I read this in a book many years ago, it just... It might even be a rich, bad, rich dad, poor dad. I think he said, we're all entrepreneurs. Whether you have a job, yeah, it was definitely him. Whether you've got a job or whether you're actually out in the field selling a product, you're either selling your services to an employer or you're selling a product to somebody else and you have to think of it that way. I would much prefer to have somebody work for me that thinks of it that way. Their job is to make sure that I'm a satisfied customer. And uh, I think if everyone thought about things that way, they'd probably go a lot farther in their jobs or they'd make the shift and, and they'd be successful entrepreneurs too. So just a little side tangent there. <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, so why don't we get into some of the, the hard fundamentals? Uh, let's talk about some of your systems. So you have obviously a system for finding money. You got a system for finding deals, system for selling the deals. So let's just pick one and start. Which one do you want to start with? Maybe I'll just run you through like what it would look like from the time we find a home to the time we try right. to sell yeah, and explain the system that was involved as you go. Right, okay. Go. So the, the, the number one, the start of the system goes with Andrew, my partner, Andrew. He is acquisitions. So under him is blanks, and he's our acquisitions manager. He's more of a subcontractor than he is an employee. Uh, it's just a weird setup we've had since the beginning, but it allows him to kind of operate autonomously, and we can trust him. It just keeps working. So he goes out. Andrew sends him a ton of deals to look for. Blanks goes out and kind of uh, filters them, right? How does he find them though? Where are these deals coming from? Market deals, off-market deals? 
Both. So we look on the MLS for anything that's been listed for too long, anything that's newly dropped in price, uh, good area, just underpriced, any of those deals, those will go into the filter. How do those get missed though? I mean, sorry, I'm going to dig in because I think these are that's important how, questions. How do those get missed by everyone else who's looking at the MLS? Great question. So we often wonder the same. And sometimes it's just that uh, we're in an area, keep in mind too, uh, you're probably in a very, very competitive area in Canada. For us, perfect example, if we go to an auction on the uh, courthouse stairs, it's usually just us. Wow. Like, that's it. You're the only person bidding. That's it. It's usually just like 95% of the time, it's me and the auctioneer. So you just do $1 or uh, <laughs> is there a $1, minimum bid? Oh, yeah. $1 over the uh, opening bid, yes. Yeah. That's usually how we get it. That's amazing. Right. So they get missed all the time because one, competition's low. Two, there's a ton of houses on the market here, mm -hmm. right? We're in Charleston, West Virginia, which we're just about an hour outside of the biggest drug epidemic in the United States in Huntington, West Virginia, uh, the meth epidemic. So there's okay. been a lot, of, a lot of houses going up for sale, a lot of people moving out of the state, unfortunately. The state, the state, there's nothing wrong with the state. I think it's a lot to do with the leadership. But anyway, with that being said, there's a lot of foreclosures, okay. right? So with that being said, Andrew groups all those together. Lee, we also have, uh, we send out mailers from time to time. And then we, so our two, three employees, let me break that down real quick. Okay. Sorry, this is kind of hard to explain because it's a lot. So you got Andrew and under Andrew is Blanks. And Blanks is the one that goes out and looks at the houses and filters them first. Then you have Regina and she's kind of our office receptionist kind of manager. And she fields all the calls from the, from the cold leads. Okay. And she'll set up second looks and stuff like that. She sends blanks out to the first ones. Blank sets up second looks. And that means, hey, this could be a possibility. That's when Steve, Andrew, and I go out and look at the house and really assess it to see if it's a great deal. So all three of you see any property before you buy it? Nine times out of 10. Okay. So, so you, that's nice. You've got a nice little pre-screen. And then once it gets serious, now you guys get out there and see it. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what is your goal? I mean, you mentioned that every, everything... It's, it's kind of hard to sell. It's, it's more of a buyer's market then because there's a lot of foreclosures. There's a lot of houses listed. How are you positioning this to be able to sell it at the end, right? Because you're flipping. You've got to be able to sell the end product. The sweet spot. We, and we had to find it. So in our area, if you buy something, if you're going to sell something, you better stay under 200000 If you go over $200,000 and we've made this mistake at least 10 times, you are going to sit on that product nine times out of 10. Unless you can sell it for 210 in an area that's calling for 300, you're going to sit on it. Because okay. it's like, let's say, let's say we even listed it 279 and the area's comps are 300. Mm -hmm. You might be waiting six months to a year. And that's, uh, that's not good in the flipping business. Back here, they call that a starter home. So here our numbers are a bit different. It's 400,000. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It just sucks. It is. Uh, it is what it is. Uh, anyway, so that's considered a starter home. So I think you're kind of saying something similar. That's kind of a home that the average person can afford. So your, your market for that home is way bigger than the market for a $400,000 home or a $300,000 home. Absolutely. That's a huge tip I would give to any new investor, any investor, period. Figure out what the average income is in your area, because that's going to give you the biggest net to throw. Right? I love that. I love that we figured that out because if you if your average income in the area is forty thousand dollars or sixty thousand dollars for a household income, mm -hmm. selling a three hundred fifty thousand dollar house is going to be really hard. Like really you're hard. going to find very few people that are approved for that. You know, you just you lower down the how many people are in your market for that home. So we, if we stay under two hundred, really, if you want to get sweet, sweet, stay under one fifty, one hundred to one fifty, and we almost sell those within three weeks to a month. That's amazing. Okay. I want to dig into that because that's like pure, pure gold and anyone can apply that anywhere. Okay. So figure out your average income, go talk to a mortgage broker or a lender and figure out, okay, based on this income and sort of figure an average amount of debt. I don't know how much debt the average American has, uh, but I, I imagine it, it varies by area. But you know, if you figure the average person might have five or $10,000 of credit card debt, I don't know what the number is. You could make some assumptions. It's 15. Is closer, it 15? To 15, closer to 15,000. Okay. So you work those numbers in. So the average person probably has a car loan. What's that going to be? Just work backwards. Give a, a, like, we're just talking like a sample application to a mortgage broker and just say, Hey, if a person came to you with this much income and these debts, how much home could they afford and how much down payment would they need? And 
if you work backwards, just like you're saying, John, you can make some, some very good assumptions as to what's going to happen and what's going to sell fast versus what's not going to sell at all. And uh, that's, that's brilliant. I've never heard anybody say that, but I think that that's, that's really what it all comes down to. What can the average person afford? And then you're, if you can price something to sell there, then you're selling a starter home or you know, just an average home, you're right in the market you want to be to be listed on MLS, right? Absolutely. I'd rather have 50 people look at my house than two maybes. And that's just, that's just how for speed, right? right? I know in some markets, you know, you can get the bigger, the, the bigger the house, no doubt, they're usually bigger the margin, right? If you can go to Florida and buy a house for 300,000, put 200,000 on it and put it up for 800,000. Good for you. We just can't do that here. We have, we have those opportunities. We have million dollar homes within a few miles of us, but you would be sitting on that inevitably. I mean, years. Years. Yeah, I know. I know someone who just sat on a $3 million house for almost two years. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. When you're, when you're financed, you know, like that's, that's bleeding, bleeding money. And uh, I can't speak to the importance of that enough. Any house I've ever sold, the importance of being able to sell quickly. That was always my number one because I would borrow very expensive money. And you do everyday costs and you should calculate it. I think that's very important. Calculate what one day costs to hold a property if you're paying interest. If you're joint ventured, it might be different. But uh, if you're paying interest, I mean, my properties could cost four or $500 a day to, to carry. So you don't want to sit. You want to get hustling and get it done. Yeah, absolutely. That's another tip I would say is consider your offers. A lot of people get really, really prideful when they're selling their homes. And let's say they're asking $299 mm-hmm. and an offer comes in at $297. And they're like, no, I'll put way too much time, effort, and work into this house. I'm not taking anything less than $299. Well, guess what? You just turned down a sale for $2,000 less than your asking price, mm-hmm. or even $5,000 less than your asking price, but this house hasn't had an offer in a month. So you just turned down the first offer you got you, to save, save $5,000, but now you've got to hold that house until it sells, and you may lose that $5,000 anyway. So you need to consider, that's why your daily price really comes into consideration. Just say, all right, what's the average? If I turn down this offer and I hold on to this house for even another 60 days, because closing, ta- I don't know about in Canada, yeah. but closing here takes 30 days at least. Oh, it's, it's a little quicker generally, but if you're, if you're going to get an offer, it's probably, they're probably going to want 60 days. They're going to write it right into the contract. So it's still going to take time. Yeah, right. absolutely. So what's 60 days times your average daily holding costs, as you just did, mm-hmm. and does that come out? What's that come out to of the $5,000 less offer that you took? And you really need to consider that. And well, not to mention that you're speculating. You have an offer in hand is worth way more than a theoretical offer that you don't have. Uh, So you really do need to put a value. Now, sometimes, so I deal in investment properties where I'm selling to investors who like a rental property. So I like to set it up specifically for this reason and others too. I like to set it up as a rental property because I don't mind holding on to it, right? Because then the tenant's paying for the, the carrying costs. But different strategy, but it's something to keep in mind. If you sell investment properties, then if it takes a little longer, you might not care. Another, another trick with that, like you said, because people are scared of setting up a rental property because obviously now you have a tenant in there. And if somebody wants to come buy it, it can either make it harder or easier. Really, it really depends. If you're selling to an investor, it's mm-hmm. fine. You already got the tenant in there. They're perfect. They're perfectly happy with that. Mm-hmm. You're selling to a home buyer. Nobody wants a tenant in their house. So another trick you could try if you are trying to flip just to flip and not sell to an investor to sell to a homeowner, you can Airbnb the property as soon as it's finished. If you're going to furnish it to show anyway, to stage anyway, and have mm-hmm. it worked out on the Airbnb that the, the, it's empty on certain days for showings. So now you're getting income while it sits on the market. That's a really smart tip. Another gold nugget. I, I knew we'd get some good ones here. <laughs> anyway, okay. So, so you took us through a bit of finding the deals. Uh, so when you find a deal, so now you got one, you and your two partners say, hey, this is a good one. We want to do this one. How do you estimate the cost? How do you know that's one that you want to do? And how accurate are your budgets normally? So another nugget is a rehab valuator. And now I'll send you the link when we get off here, but the, it's called Rehab Evaluator. And it, it has been, we went through multiple programs and there was one even called Builder Trend or something. And I'm not knocking that company. I never talked down on a company, but when you're talking a thousand dollars a month for an app, it was just too much, especially if you're new, new into this or getting through some uh, capital problems. So we found Rehab Evaluator and I think it was like $200 for the whole year. 
And this guy's put a lot of work into this spreadsheet. I mean, from the time you purchase it to the time you sell, it prints off in PDF as an investor pitch. It prints off a PDF for graphs on what they've earned, ROI. It does it all, but it also helps you on your rehab scope. So you can customize it as much as you want. Prices in your area, what you normally do to a home. If you're going to do granite or Formica, it breaks okay. it all down. And so we do that on every home now. We used to just run through with a notebook like everybody else. But right. you have to eventually build a system. And so that's what we do. When we go to the house, we, get, we go through everything we want to do to the home. We do a soft flip analysis and we do a full flip analysis. And the house determines that. If it's burnt down, we got to do a full flip. If okay. we go in there and it's just old paint, old trim, old appliances, you know, need some carpet, needs one wall repaired. No, we're looking at a soft flip analysis, mm -hmm. right? Put a roof on it, whatever the case may be. Then we put it all in the rehab valuator. We put our purchase price. We put our estimated closing cost. We put our estimated holding cost. That's another one people skip is not just like, not the holding cost only on your percentage that you're paying to your investor, but to mow the lawn, to pay the electric. Is winter coming yep. up? Because our electric for us can jump two, $300 a month if it's yep. electric heat. So oh, you yeah. have to calculate all that. Some people just miss out on all that stuff. But when you're carrying, we have at any given time, we're carrying 15, 25 homes, you know, between we just bought and closing, mm -hmm. mow that many lawns, that's a lot of money every month. Yeah, and property taxes, insurance, these are things that people forget. Man, it, care, it costs money to hold a property. So this is why it's so important that your contractors show up on time. <laughs> all the time and i've just noticed the more you for me the more i've subbed and separated and isolated so i have my cabinet guy i have my countertop guy i have my trim guy i have my painter i have everyone's you got a guy you got a, a subcontractor for that the more you do that the more you're dealing with that person's scheduling when their last job ended when their next job starts and it starts to turn into something that could have been done in two months now takes four and I've personally witnessed that when I used to have one guy do everything or a, a couple of guys that, I was, that were pretty close to me do everything. Things got done faster, but sometimes the quality isn't as good because they don't specialize. So, you know, this is something you're going to dig into this, I'm sure, but go ahead. Exactly. So I'll definitely touch on contractors because that, like you were, you were saying there, that's one of the biggest nightmares in this whole business. But then after we evaluate it, then the, however the numbers pan out, we need at least a $20,000 profit margin, right? That's, so that's your worst case, 20,000 worst, worst case. Ca worst case scenario, we need to be at 20,000. When I first got to the company, they were around 10, but they didn't really have a system for not only over, keep in mind, we actually have uh, employees and an office. So that's overhead too. So right. the houses pay for all that. And if you go three or four months without selling a house, that overhead in the office keeps piling up too. Absolutely. Because we, we have an in-house bookkeeper as well. That mm -hmm. was, that, that's our third employee. So anyway, once we determine all that, then we all agree on the offer. Then we place the offer if we have not bought it already. Sometimes you've already bought it at auction, and we just had to really use our, our educated guessing skills mm -hmm. that that 20000 would be there. So what we've done with, with auctions is we just – because you, sometimes you can't get inside of them. So right. what we said, what is a no-brainer price that we could pay for this, right? Okay. If we had, if worst case scenario, we get in there and the entire thing's rotted out in termite and had to rebuild it from the ground up. That's kind of how we look at it. And so then we put the offer in, unless we've already bought it. But then Steve, that's our, my other partner, he's the contracting side. Mm -hmm. He's got a GC. He manages all the contractors. He uh, puts all the houses together, and the, not the budgets, but the uh, task sheet. So then he okay. gives us all a task sheet. And the task sheet goes, this is going to be done this week. This is going to be done this week. This contractor's making this much money, this much money. Due date of the entire project. He hands all that off to our bookkeeper. He plugs all that in again to Rehab Valuator. Because keep in mind, when we're doing Rehab Valuator at first, you're just guessing that somebody will paint that house for $5,000. you are in the ballpark, but right. you don't have a contract yet. So if you Absolutely. can't find a contractor for doing it for less than $5,000, then you might have to pay $5,500. Right. So now we have to update the Rehab Valuator. But we keep a five dollars to $10,000 contingency number in all of our flips. So if we do the whole budget yep. in a small house under 1,500 square feet, it's usually a $5,000 contingency. We, we didn't see something when we walked through it. A contractor quit on us. Whatever the, it, it sat on the market too long. Whatever the case may be, over 1,500 square feet is $10,000. Okay. That's interesting. And does this program that you're using, does it actually remember what uh, – 
what you paid on other projects and suggest a range for you? I don't know if it suggests ranges, but it does keep all history of all projects. Yeah. So we, all we have to do is look back and say, well, what did we pay to paint that house that was similar? Yeah, that's, that's such an incredible information for, for estimating. And I use a similar approach in that I'm always going based on what it cost me in the past. Like when I go and, and break out my spreadsheet, I'm like, okay, well, what did I pay on these projects? Okay, similar size, a little bit smaller. Okay, I'm going to adjust that number to be in between. So you can get close, but again, you're right. Markets can change contractors get busy and all of a sudden what contractors do this is a gold nugget for anybody who hasn't dealt with contractors people don't say generally speaking don't say no i won't do the work what they do is they say this is the price and the price is set so ridiculously that if you were to say yes they would take the job because it's just so good to them you know they make so much money uh, i've i've had guys it only happened to me once and it really didn't sit well with me but actually just straight up told me he's just like i'm really busy so if you want me my price now is up uh, quite a bit. It was, it was several thousand dollars for drywall. And I didn't like it. But I mean, I guess that's part of the game, right? You just gotta, you gotta accept that that is going to happen. So yeah, markets changes will happen. But yeah, carry on, John. So yeah, I guess for me, because I come from the contracting world, when I was a mover, you know, basically, I was a contractor for the customer. And yeah, if I was extremely busy that week, if you wanted me to work an extra six hours on a Sunday, mm -hmm. the price is different. And so that's yeah. the same thing. If they're busy, they can raise their prices. Now, I don't like price gouging. Don't, yeah. just, don't just double the price. But if you want to ask a premium, then that, I'm okay with that. That can happen. And yeah. you, what are you going to do? Wait three weeks for him to finish to get your price back down and let the house sit? You can't do that. And another thing that can catch you off guard is let's say you had your buddy Jim. Mm -hmm. He's been doing all your trim work for two years on your houses. Mm -hmm. Now, Jim doesn't want to do trim work anymore. And you've been paying 30% of market price for trim work for two years and now you find out the real price of trim work that, oh. that gets people too i would say i felt sort of the opposite of that i'd have a guy that i use a lot and they'd get comfortable and they'd they just slowly slowly start increasing their prices each time so a little bit more oh well you know this this and this this has a bigger this is that and uh if you don't i don't know if you do something to kind of keep people honest like a bidding or a tendering system uh, but I've had, you know, these contractors, they chum up like they're friends, right? Like they start, you know, we, some of them are, are you know, kind of cool people, you get along and, and you talk very casually, and, and you almost become friends, which actually makes it harder, because now they're expecting their hand is out. And, and I, I had a plumber, he, he called me and he's just like, yo, why didn't you tell me about this job? And I'm like, to be quite honest, I was going to talk to you, because I figured you would ask me at some point. But uh, this is getting too expensive. Like I've looked back at invoices from three years ago, you're almost double what you used to charge me. I have to tender this out. As a smart business person, that's what I put it back on. It's kind of like your systems thing. I said, in, in order for me to be a successful business person, I cannot allow stuff like that to happen without double checking. Um, do you have a similar experience? Has that happened to you? Yes, that does happen. So I'll, I'll, I'll go into the contracting part now because that's about where we're at. We okay. have the task sheet. We have the budget together. Now Steve goes and hires all the contractors and puts them on the job. We have a two, if it's not two, it's three page front and back contract for the contractors. And we've covered just about everything we possibly can. But one of the biggest things we've implemented is like you said, everybody's your friend. Everybody's your friend when they start the job. If you haven't had a fight with a contractor yet, you're not in the flipping business. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Are they your best friend? I don't know how else you've gotten around it. Because I've had fights. I've managed some projects myself just because I wanted the experience. I've managed many of my own homes under Steve's wing. But I've gotten into verbal arguments on the site with contractors because mm -hmm. they're three, four weeks late. So anyway, to, to nip all that in the bud, what we do is have a contract signed with them with a due date. The only thing that can change that due date is severe weather or a really bad illness, right? And that's yeah. weird because they're not an employee, but they, they sign it and agree to this. Like okay. You have to have a legitimate excuse to get out of the $50 per day penalty. So if you're late by one day, it's $50 and that keeps compounding every single day. I like that. And I've heard, I've heard that, uh, I don't know if you've ever read this book. It's, I think it's called the Real Estate Rehab Investing Bible. Hmm. Similar thought process. Uh, anyways, yeah, it talks about that. Putting in, basically making sure your, your contract is ironclad, which it sounds like you guys do. And, and the penalty, brilliant. You know, and if, if the clearer you are in your list of things that need to be done, like what, what can they say? Oh, you didn't tell us which countertop you're using. Oh no, look at page three. It's in there. Like we've already told you, you know, everything you already just get on it, get it done. 
that's that's a great idea. Right. So we tell them straight up, the likelihood of you failing or not getting this job completed on time is high. Like we just tell them straight to their face now because in the area we're in, it's really hard. And we don't we do it in a nice way. We don't just go at them and, and trash them. When we're having the businessman to businessman talk with them, we say, this is what we've experienced. This is what we've ex we expect. But now what we, this is what we're agreeing on. You're mm -hmm. going to be done by this date, barring these catastrophes. If not, it's a $50 a day. Not only that, but here's all the other rules. No smoking inside the homes. If we find a cigarette butt on the premises, it's $10 per cigarette butt. Mm -hmm. And they sign all this. And that's because we're not picking up after kids. We've had contractors use the bathroom, number two, in trash bags and leave it in houses. We're not picking that up. You need to take all your trash with you. You need to pick up your own material. Yeah. You need to be able to cover your employees from the time that you're able to draw to the time you get paid. All that is in there. And so there's no miscommunication or there shouldn't be. Are these typically uh, general contractors that you're subbing to? Do they, do they handle the thing from start to finish, everything? So we tried it both ways and it would be a management nightmare to try to deal with 50, 60 specialized contractors. Or when you have 10 houses going at the same time, waiting on one specialized contractor to get to all 10 homes. So what we've tried to do is find a GC with his own crew. And we had a new rule because this is very important too. do not overfeed these guys because they will say yes to everything. They will take as many houses as you throw at them not knowing or knowing good and well they cannot handle the workload and will get delayed stressed out and our contractors will quit so we have a new rule one house per gc crew until they prove us otherwise so you slowly work up you get one house if you finish that house on time and on budget great then you move up to one house in a side job like helping us with another house then you move up to two houses and it's going to be a long time before you ever get through. That's again, pure gold, man. That's, and it makes perfect logical sense. And uh, yeah, you just, you got to see how they can handle it. And I think that's been one of my challenges is I, I'll do typically one at a time, maybe two, but they've been bigger projects and uh, just looking at it and all the logistics and all the things going on and, and, you know, trying to get this plumber from house A to house B and, and get them to finish everything. It, it adds up, right? So you need somebody who has crews. And I think way more importantly for you is I never used my own GCs. I actually went to specialized trades, which I think just made my, my life kind of a nightmare. <laughs> in a way, yes. In a way, no. Because now people will hire me as a GC occasionally. And um, not that I really look for that business, but occasionally I'll do it for an investor or something. I'll help them build something or you know, maybe if it's a, a student rental, I like to do those. So, you know, I'll say, Hey, I have a vision for that. I, that's what I do. I'll, I'll take care of it for you. Uh, oh, so you're, li you're a licensed GC? We don't really, like you have to have a business license. It's different up here. Mm. Like down there, there's actually a licensing to be a contractor. Like, I mean, you can have a red seal carpenter or something like that, but um, it's not actually required. We have something like we have insurances that are required and this and that, but if you can satisfy those things, you can, anyone can be a, a contractor. You just need the contacts. So it's funny that that's different down there, that, that it's actually harder to be a contractor down there. Right. So how about your trades? Are your, your, you don't have to have a license, but the guys doing the work, do they have to carry a certification? Plumber does, electrician does, uh, but not a framer. You just have to pass inspections. Yeah, oh, HVAC okay. guy does. Like you have to have gas fitter license, all that stuff. Yes. So there are certain ones that do, but you know, generally speaking, anyone can hang drywall. Anyone can you know, tape drywall or, or stuff insulation as long as those things pass inspection. There's no inspection for drywall, but if it looks crappy, I mean, no one's going to buy it. So yeah. I do want to add that we have a few specialized guys. We have an in-house in HVAC company. So okay. that's, that's downstairs. So we have that for all of our heating and air and they're, they're they can do small contracting work. And then we have a, an electrician, uh, Roger that goes out and he plugs, he's a plug and play. It's a punch list on a house. We need, we need a boob light changed out, whatever the case yeah. is. We have him. We do have a few of those guys on call, but they're not somebody that we would give multiple houses to. We really want the GC to take as much of the house as possible. And let's say that they're like, we, we can do everything, but we just can't do roofing. Okay. We'll yeah. still have the house. We can get a roofer over here. But if you're like, I can do the whole house, but I can't do this, 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 mm. or this. Sorry. We, we, we got we to gotta move on. 
Okay. So, so are you just, do you find that you're just adapting to your market as it goes? If you can find guys to do the whole thing, you, that's what you do. If, if you need to step in and fill in the blanks more, you do that too. We, yes, we went through at least 20 contractors. We've had contractors completely screw us. And a lot of that was because of our failure of a system. Mm-hmm. Like, please, everybody listening to this, never pay up front ever. Do not pay up front unless it's a small amount for them to get started or to buy material. But never pay as the completion rate and double check. Don't just say that. Don't let take a phone call from Jim, the roofer, and say, oh, I'm at least 75% done with this roof. Can I go ahead and draw 75%? You give Jim 75%. You go over there the next day. The shingles are still on the ground. Mm-hmm. And Jim's gone. Yes. Can I, can I reiterate? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> to everyone listening, do not ever give anyone money, ever, before <laughs> they do work. Uh, I have somebody coming to start purging for me on Sunday, which it's not a person I've worked with before and they want to deposit. I'm like, sorry, I can't do that. But what I can do is I can buy your materials. Here's what you're going to need to do. So he's showing up on site and this is, this is the closest to breaking my own rule that I will ever do. Uh, I said, if you get to site and take a picture of your materials in front of my house, I, and he's coming from a town that's an hour away anyway. So I know he's not going to just do this. I'm giving him 500 bucks and that even, I mean, if I lose 500, I'm okay with that. But it just happened to my friend. He just gave a guy uh, $15,000 in Buffalo to renovate a house. That was the deposit. He tried. I said, I said, do not. I'm like, under any circumstance, give a deposit. I told him this. I'm like, don't do it. I'm telling you, don't do it. You lose all your leverage. What leverage do you have on somebody when you gave them $15,000 and you say, hey, have you been at my house yet? Oh, no, we'll be over there next week. Next week comes. No, and it'll be next month. Like, it, it is so predictable. You always have to remember when you're dealing with contractors, uh, subcontractors, do you have leverage in that relationship? And if you don't feel like you do, you don't. And uh, the second you give that money, you don't. So there's usually ways. I, I always tell people, do milestones, and, but make it so it's favoring you. So if they're 25% done, you're only paying them up to 15%, just like you're saying. That's, that's smart. Another thing too, because it can get tricky with the buddy-buddy rule with the uh, contractors, and they'll, call it, they'll all have a sob story. They lost their truck, their wife left them, they got to go to the hospital. They all have it, right? And I'm not discounting, discounting real stories, right? I'm sorry if anybody's actually in a hardship. I don't want to sound ruthless here because I'm definitely not. I'm actually too impact, I have too much empathy sometimes. Mm-hmm. But what I do want to add is to let the system pay them, all right? You have no control. You yourself, when they call you, I don't have access to the money. My bookkeeper does. And look, it might be a white lie, but if you don't have a full corporation or system set up right now, you have a bookkeeper. Wink, wink. All right? Yeah. Bookkeeper controls the payout, and unless you're complete with this much, the system will not write the check. My bookkeeper will not allow me to authorize money paid until this much has been completed. Mm -hmm. And now you've taken the onus off of you, and you don't feel like a butthole. When they call you up, you don't feel like the bad guy saying, "Uh, sorry, I can't pay you early or pay you up front. Like I literally do not have the authority to do so. The other thing you could do is if you're working with a joint venture partner or you have an investor, you can, you can put it back on your investor and say, hey, my investor won't allow me to make any decision that could compromise their position. And unfortunately, that would compromise their position. Done. Same thing. Same thing. Your investor hasn't wired me the money yet. I don't have it. Yeah. There's so many ways. Uh, I, I could even just say, hey, you know, look, Jim, like I've got a system here. I, I appreciate what you're saying. I'm not, I'm not great at evaluating these type of stories. Honestly, I, I believe you. But my system is this because in the past I've done this and I've been burned. So I can't help you with that. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll do everything I can to get you paid as soon as you're done the, the job. That's it. Hey, I'm happy to pay you. The second you reach that milestone, I will have that check written three days before. So the second you finish, it's there. Or better yet, I do direct deposit. I'm like, you literally send me pictures of this done or whatever. Um, I will initiate that deposit. It'll be in your account before the end of the day. So you could find a way to spin it, but everyone's got their own personality. You're going to do what feels comfortable to you. Absolutely. I'm just trying to protect people from losing money and leverage because yeah. leverage is everything in this business, especially with contractors. So what I guess I'll do now, it's up to you, but I can go into the next step. Yeah, let's go into selling. How are you doing? Okay. It? So, is that so the next step or did you have uh, something else? One thing before then is always check your budgets weekly. Yeah. You need to have a weekly process to be watching your budgets because they can get out of control quickly. You need to make sure you don't have any outstanding. If you're charging things to Lowe's, y'all have Lowe's? Canada have Lowe's? Oh, like, a, like the big box store? Yeah. Is that like what, what do y'all have? 
Okay. Home yeah, Depot. Lowe's, Home Depot. Yeah, we have that. Yeah. If you have credit lines anywhere, make sure you're monitoring those because what you don't want is to get to the end of the project and forget you have an $8,000 lumber bill mm-hmm. that you haven't accounted for. And then you put your house up and after you get the offer, you're, you're at break even, right? Oh, so okay. keep account of every account that you have, have a system for that. Uh, and then now we're getting close to the, the wrapping up the project, finish up the project and do a punch list. Mm-hmm. So don't just let your contractor just say, I'm done with it. You need to go in behind your contractor and this needs to be in your contractor's contract. Mm-hmm. Whoever did the work needs to warranty it until you've signed it off, right? So if they've done the electrical or the framing or put the outlet, let's just do something simple like put outlets in, in the house and you go there through there and there's three outlets missing. They need to come back free of charge and yep. get those outlets in. And that's, that's important for precedent too, because if you let them away with it once, it will only get worse. It will only get worse every single time. If they know that you're going to be on them the second they don't do something right because you guys agreed on it, you're, you're setting yourself up for success in the future first. Absolutely. And, and I'm speaking from experience because I've made all these mistakes. I'm speaking as the guy that made the mistakes. <laughs> then, if you're, then, I, then you do what I like to call the moving in yourself test. Act like you're buying this home yourself. And it really helps if you can take a third party in there with you, like you're, somebody that's not in the business, your wife, a friend, a cousin. And say, what are some things that you would change on this house? Like if you had, like, is there something dirty, something out of place, a light switch weird, door open weird? You know, anything that could really throw, when they pull up, curb appeal. Like, is there anything, should we put flowers? Do all that stuff first. Have a nice presentation. The better you present it, the higher your chance, not guarantee, the higher your chance are it sells faster, right? And then, now you got to market. And that's where Andrew comes in again. That's his expertise. I'm pretty good at it as well, but uh, I do it for other companies more so. He just, he, it's the lane he took. Put out a video, a coming soon video, one week before it's complete. Coming soon. This would get with your realtor. Like yeah. get, build some hype around that property. Talk about how, all the value in it. Don't just point things out. Say, say something like, this house has granite countertops and stainless steel, which you will not find in similar price homes in this area. If you just say it has granite countertops, okay, cool. But why is that such a good value in that area? So make sure you're pointing things out. Lots of Facebook videos. You should have a Facebook page for your flipping company, for your rental company. And that goes a long way. And you can market. Best thing about Facebook, I don't know if you use Facebook marketing. You can market your direct area within a circle, within 10 miles, within five miles. Yeah, you can you can just get people in your area. So coming coming soon, absolutely. I haven't really dove into Facebook too much yet. I, I'm there, but uh, I'm more on Instagram just because I find that people more search organically that way. Right. But uh, yeah, for for selling, I have I have kind of a unique strategy which we won't get into because I don't think we'll have the time. But I'll talk about that another time. Uh, so you talked about your song. Are you still listing all of these? Do they all go on the market, or do you get some private buyers? So every once in a while, we do get a private buyer when we do a coming soon video. And that's why we do them. We have a house right now. We stole this one. This one might be our biggest deal yet. Uh, I'm the investor on it, of course. I kind of cherry pick them a little bit. But we bought this house for $58,000. And the ARV, if it was completely repaired, would be closer to three hundred. So we can't go wrong with this. So we're going to do what we call a very soft flip at first. It has a little bit of damage in the back room. It needs a roof. And it needs clean. We're going to do all that and landscape it, but we're going to do a coming soon video on Monday. And we're going to say, this is your chance right now to get this home before it ever hits the market. Oh, okay. It's not a full flip, but you could be walking into a potential $100,000 in equity to do this home yourself. Now it's low percent on these, 10%, right? Because you're not going to hit as many people as if it was MLS. But 10% sell on that, just giving it a shot for a week. If somebody comes in and buys that for cash, we dodge the realtor. We yep. dodge repairs, we dodge everything. So that happens. We did one about a month ago, but after, don't give it a long time because you need to move these. One week okay. of that, no action. Yeah. Work to it and get the, get the house up. Yeah, don't set timing is everything, especially because you've got investors' money that you can put to work again and you, you don't want to sit on that. You want to get it back to work. Absolutely. Uh, one thing we didn't get into, which I think is important, is where you're getting the leads for your. Uh, private investors. Where are those coming from? We have been more than fortunate in this area. Don't even take us for an example, really. Uh, we, Steve, before joining up with Andrew and before I came on board, was a contractor for a very wealthy businessman here where we live. Mm-hmm. And he made the contact then. Then 
he gave Stephen Andrew, I believe, the first amount on one of their houses and flipped it and did really well. And now it almost became an unlimited up to four million so far. Source okay. of source of income. And not only that, but we don't pay percent on the money. We could have a house out for a year and a half as long as he gets a third of the profit. The only thing that where we lose is if if it's if it if it's a loser, if the house is a loser, mm-hmm. the investor loses because he gets zero dollars back, but he all 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 of our investors always get all of their money back. Yeah. We can only do that while we're small, but all our investors never lose. They would lose having now $150,000 for a year and a half and no return. That's, a, that's essentially a loss, but they didn't lose any invested amount. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So it's, it's what we would call a joint venture partnership almost because they're, they're partnered in on the profit. They're not just an interest rate. I've done an interest rate with my investors, um, which I guess they're kind of spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, hey, like you got a give and take relationship. And, and I think that it, it's nice to have investors constantly want to come back. And right. That's a, that's a good place to be. Right. Um, and then I've then I brought in, my wife and I have brought in uh, around probably up to about a half a million so far, maybe a little less, around $400,000 that we've brought in uh, that we're actively investing. Mm-hmm. And then we have, we have two more smaller investors that can do maybe one house at a time. I think we've, we've covered a lot. So one thing I wanted to ask you is for somebody getting started or, or thinking about getting started, say they've never even flipped a property. What's like one word of wisdom or one piece of wisdom you would give them? Get a mentor. That'd be mine. That, and I know that's, that sounds cliche to most. And I'm not talking about paying Dan Locke, you know, $50,000 for a course. I have no problem with that, first of all. Do you know what I'm talking about with Dan Locke? I think I he's in Canada, actually. He's a huge, I think he's a real estate, Grant Cardone, I'm sure that. Okay, no problem with these individuals. But I really think that that is another step down the road when you have that money to spend. Mm -hmm. Find a mentor in your area doing, actually doing, not read a book, not knows a guy, but doing what you want to do specifically and sit down with them, buy them lunch, buy them tons of lunches, buy them dinners, find out something they need. It's easy to find out what people need just by following their Instagram or their Facebook like I can't find an electrician or I can't find a, uh, a marketer. I can't find someone. I don't understand how to use Instagram. Maybe you do. So you email them and say, hey, I know how to do that. I will do it for free. Absolutely for free. If I can just have 30 minutes of your time once a week for the next month. And you that's, never know where that might lead. That's great advice. I, absolutely. I, I don't think there's enough people doing that. They say they want to learn and, and then they don't, they don't do, the, do the step, right? Right. So you might be lucky enough to find somebody who just cares about you and wants to help you, but that's a, that's a very passive approach. I mean, getting out there and, and being active, like you're saying, that's how you bridge the gap on your learning and, uh, and, and really accelerate your growth. So very well said, John. Uh, if, uh, if someone wanted to get a hold of you and, uh, and connect and learn a little bit more about what you're doing, what would be the best way? So I have multiple ways. Uh, John Scholler on Instagram. You can follow me there. I do have a YouTube channel. I started within the last six months. That's John Scholler as well. I talk about investing, finance, real estate investing. I do a couple day in the life vlogs. So I walk through houses and talk about what we're going to pay for them and all that. And so that's the, and then on Facebook at John Scholler as well. I'm on all platforms at my name. I'll put a, I'll put a link to uh, to one of them. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, don't don't mind Jordan. She's just gonna be walking behind me. Maybe, yeah, maybe somebody will uh, will jump into uh, into YouTube to check this out. Uh, <laughs> anyways, um, yeah. So I'll put up a link so so that people can connect with you, and then they can see some of the funny faces that you make on your uh, your videos, your video thumbnails. So John John will make a funny face as uh, clickbait, I guess. That's that's uh, what it is. I, I was trying to like I, I did a few videos, and I would you know it, it would just pick a thumbnail. And I was like, my mouth's open or so I was yeah. like, I'm just going to do some funny thumbnails. What else? Get you clicking. Yeah, that's great. Hey, anything you could do to, to kind of get people's attention. I think I found it funny and it actually <laughs> caught my attention. So, there um, go. so yeah, good on you. And uh, okay. So a couple of uh, rapid fire questions. Your favorite uh, real estate book. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'll never say another one. I don't think. Okay. Favorite book outside of that, out of, outside of real estate. I have to do, can I do two? Can sure. I do two? All right. Traction for business building and building okay. a system, and then 10x with Grant Cardone. If you really want to understand that, you could always be working harder. 
Yeah, I, I just got through that one recently too, and I, I think it's fantastic. And uh, dream vacation? Already taken it, but it, it, it's, it'll be there again with my wife. And we got married in Maldives, so that's where that's my place. Maldives, where's that? It's in the Indian Ocean, off the uh, off the coast of really. So you got to go all the way to the tip okay. of India, and then go into the ocean a little bit further. Wow. Okay. Beautiful. And uh, one unique thing about yourself that people don't know, most people don't know. Uh, most people don't know that I am a professional photographer. I've been um, published many times. Uh, you can find me on Instagram on that as well. It's shots by Scholler. So shots by my last name. Huh. And uh, my wife and I own a gym. That's awesome. Okay, John. Well, it's, uh, it's been really interesting. I'm sure that uh, our followers are going to get a lot out of this. I, I as far as singular gold nuggets that just came in sequence, I, I don't think I've had an episode with more of them. So uh, for anyone listening, come back, listen to it again. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast because I'm going to have more people like John coming on in the future and share it with a friend because obviously, John, you're adding tons of value. This needs to get out there so more people can benefit for it, uh, from it. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, do you have any questions for me before we, we wrap up? That'll be it, man. Thank you so much for having me. And where, where can I find, where can everybody find you if they're watching this on my channel? Uh, so if you want to find me, the easiest place is on Instagram at the Andrew Hines. And uh, that's kind of my most active spot. I have a Facebook, or sorry, Facebook page, Instagram page, uh, and uh, they're both the Andrew Hines. And then on YouTube, the best thing is just search Andrew Hines Real Estate. I'll pop right up. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm getting, I don't have a handle yet. I'm not big enough on, on YouTube yet, but uh, We'll get it going. Anyways, thanks again, John, and uh, let's stay in touch. Absolutely. Have a great day. You too.